is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. So the Pacific Northwest used to have a dynamite problem. The amount of crimes and accidents involving everyone's favorite explosive is astonishing, and I now find myself surprised to see any Oregonian over 60 with all of their fingers. The scope of this one was so vast. There were so many incidents and so few arrests that tracking most of them to any kind of conclusion was not possible. There are so many of these dynamitings and firebombings that I may be compelled to create a sister podcast that focuses only on Pacific Northwest crimes involving explosives and call it wet dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and say maybe not. (laughs) Just kidding. Wet. Wet. Yeah, put an H in there. It's in theme with our other show. Oh, we get it. Oh, Oh, you don't like it? It just sounds terrible. (laughs) We totally understand what you're saying. (laughs) Well. Don't take the wind out of his sails. Oh, I'm sorry. I only have a few ideas. (laughs) So they better all be good. I limited my search to only Washington and Oregon. And there were seriously so many, I just had to stop after 1970. I found an endless number of incidents involving dynamite, from heists to murders and murder-suicides to small slip-ups with catastrophic results. I can't even imagine the tidal wave of incidents I'd find if I'd added Alaska, because I'm pretty sure that is one dynamite-comfortable state, to say the least. They have that vibe for sure. So if you see dynamite... Say dynamite. And if you say dynamite, stay away from dynamite. All right? No response? <laughs> um, it was just, uh, say all right. Oh, well, all right. <laughs> with my mouth agape. Dynamite was invented and refined in 1867 by Alfred Nobel of the Nobel Prize. Nitroglycerin, too unstable for commercial use, when mixed with sawdust, became the relatively safer sticks we've all watched a Roadrunner use to toy with and ultimately annihilate an incel coyote. And though it was more stable, dynamite when stored for a period of time could start to sweat nitroglycerin from its wrapped tube and soak the crate containing it. Then with a little bad luck and a scrape or bump or dropping of the box, kaboom. If you've seen Vertical Limit, you know how dangerous that can be. Mm, Chris O'Donnell. It's a good film. The laws regarding dynamite in Oregon were almost non-existent, the only prohibiting factor being the age of the purchaser. You had to be a whopping 12 years old to buy dynamite at your local explosives retailer for 36 cents a pound, or nearly $13 today. And what would a retailer be, like just a a hardware store? Yeah, like a general store, I believe. I mean, yeah, hardware store, I mean, probably... I, I bet pharmacies sold it. I bet everybody sold it. Could you imagine working there and a child, a 12-year-old child comes in? Well, I mean, they were probably doing the work, too. Blasting oh, yeah. out the oh, yeah. Smoking, they had a mustache already. That's a very good point. Wow. They already scary. have kids to feed. <laughs> and it wasn't until 1970 that easy access to dynamite was limited by federal legislation. Its possession or use would be legal only when accompanied with a permit issued by the ATF. 
so there was this legal thing just about anybody could buy. And then because this thing was used in acts that killed people, and it was something one could kill with so easily, it was determined that further legislation regarding the control of these things was required, limiting access for the well-being of everybody. Interesting. I, n- I know you're thinking about guns. <laughs> That's right. In Oregon, that change must have been an indescribable relief, as the Pacific Northwest had been plagued with dynamite and firebombing incidents for many years. And the focus of this part of our story takes place in Eugene, home of the University of Oregon. Quack, quack. During the 1960s, the most intense focus of counterculture protests at the University of Oregon became the school's ROTC chapter, which had been a part of the campus since 1916, after the passage of the National Defense Act, which created the Reserve Officers Training Corps and also gave the president authority to mobilize the National Guard during either war or emergency crisis. ROTC was a mandatory program for all male freshmen and sophomore students until 1962, when protests, threats, arson, violence, and finally a vote by both faculty and students, which altered the ROTC at U of O to volunteer only. Even with that change, the ROTC remained as the enemy, a symbol of the senseless meat grinder the United States had constructed and aimed at Vietnam. A night watchman at the U of O campus called the fire department at 3.30 a.m. on April 25, 1963 to report a fire. The ROTC building was ablaze, and the eight responding fire engines battled the flames for an hour and a half before their tenacity prevailed. Built in 1918 and empty at the time of the fire, it consisted of staff offices, two classrooms, and storage space for cadet records, and its top floor was a shooting range, which proved to be a hindrance in fighting the fire as its windows were all boarded up. The structure was a total loss. Investigators found evidence of kindling piles placed around the building that had been stoked with accelerant after they were set afire. Only the building's frame remained standing, until two months later, when someone set the frame on fire, which weakened and collapsed it, taking the loss from total to totally total. There's a big gap in bombings here, for which I could find no reason. So we're hopping over to 1968, when a Molotov cocktail was thrown into the same ROTC building on May 3rd, but the fire didn't take. A broken window and the bottle were discovered by a campus security officer and reported. In West Eugene, on September 29th, quote, a series of explosions and fires did an estimated $106,000 in damage to the Naval and Marine Corps Reserve Training Center. No arrests. The day before, students at OSU, 40-ish miles north of Eugene, go beavers, chomp chomp, <laughs> it's actually found a stick of dynamite on an athletic field, which was then disposed of by Corvallis police. And the following are a couple of cases unrelated to the Eugene bombings, but they are exemplars of my new wet dynamite thoughts, <laughs> which you guys hate, but now have to hear. Uh, can we go back to that? They just found it on the field. Like, like a, whoops, a yeah. stick of dynamite. Yeah, not planted, not set, and not in any sort of like threatening way. It just like it probably just fell out of some kid's pocket. So I will say everyone used to sneak into the field, like even in high school in the 90s, we would sneak in. And just like hang out on the field and like drink and stuff. So I could, I don't know who had dynamite in their pockets. <laughs> I'm waiting for your, but Plain. and we'd have dynamite, you know, but it was pretty potato. popular before they built the new stadium to like sneak in and oh, party. Interesting. Well, there we go. Wow, that's that's wild. You're just jogging along. I, I don't know if you looked, Josh. Does dynamite look like what we've? 
become accustomed to picturing like a little red tube. So I picture like blocks of like clay like. Yeah. So, well, they they did have that actually looked just a little bit at at, like the different mixtures of dynamite. So you had like a 50 50 dynamite that was like um, half sawdust, half nitroglycerin. And then that would be loaded into like a paper tube, like a brown paper tube. Oh, sort so of, that's generally. kind of like the cartoon. The so red. then it would yeah. burn down. And, okay. Okay. and then on the other end of the spectrum would be like a, a 90-10 mix, 90 nitroglycerin, 10 sawdust, and that's gelatin explosive, oh. which I don't know what they'd use for, but I guess it'd be, it'd be more like like napalm or something maybe. it'd be. Jeez. And I guess that's what I picture, but for some reason it, in my mind, it's like a gray, like a clay. <laughs> yeah. So in this, yeah, it was just uh, yeah, old, old school sticks, wow. which are just just so dangerous. It's crazy. <laughs> I seriously got scared just reading about dynamite. <laughs> it's everywhere. September 22nd, a week before the West Eugene ROTC attack, a couple living on Bainbridge Island in Puget Sound were shot over a property feud. Lloyd and Gladys Locke, 33 and 29, fell victim to Arliss Yen, 62, who killed Lloyd with a rifle and shot Gladys with a shotgun before blowing himself up inside his car with a stick of dynamite. Gladys survived the attack but lost a hand to the buckshot. Wow, that is gory. And also, what a strange, not strange, I guess unexpected, if you've already shot someone, that you would then go blow yourself well, up. Well, I mean, if you had it handy and you know it gets Ooh. the job done. That's, and that's uh, that would be a, a pretty certain way to do that, yeah, depending on true. where it, it exploded near you. Oof. Yikes. In Newport, on Oregon's coast, five days after the murder-suicide, quote, a stick of dynamite exploded on the roof of Lincoln Junior High School doing $250 in damage. The blast happened as school was beginning for the day, and there were luckily no injuries reported. Probably some little jerk with a slingshot in his back pocket is responsible, and they are probably dead now. So, justice. So do you have any stats on the number of people who died by dynamite in this time period? I didn't see any, but I think it might be one or two. I, I was talking about just like the, the bombings on, on the college campus or, mm. you know, in around there, the ones that were like kind of related well, were just, like two, but yeah, I don't know what the number is. Yeah. yeah. Like the general number. Cause we, we now know gun deaths are the majority of teenager right. deaths, right. caused by guns. I'm wondering if, cause it seems like dynamite was rather high, but maybe it just happened a lot and people survived cause it was empty. Yeah. Like how or, common it was that, or like where it landed on the causes of death. Yeah. yeah, I should have looked up the like the most even the most recent dynamite like murder or crime would have been interesting. But There's so always you know time. what? Yeah, tune into Wet Dynamite, <laughs> <laughs> the new Patreon series just, by Josh. Yeah, just if you just Put it message on Patreon. me, <laughs> uh, message me, and I'll check my Instagram in like a year or two, and I will be right respond with I'll be like, that's a great story. In response to the escalating attacks on military installations in Oregon, the Army tightened their security measures, installing floodlights on their perimeters, doubling their security, and putting it on 24-hour watch. A 24-hour series of bombings in Eugene began when, quote, two sticks of dynamite exploded in the doorway of Central Presbyterian Church on May 15, 1969. Some windows were blown out, and the building was slightly damaged, but no persons were injured as the explosion occurred very early in the morning, and it was empty. The next targets were the Eugene Register Guard newspaper building, U of O's administration building, a bank near campus, and a state highway division maintenance yard. Quote, The final blast rocked Emerald Hall at U of O. No one was arrested, and the only people questioned were witnesses. A fire at U of O's physical education building destroyed an ROTC supply room, six or seven classrooms, 
and irreplaceable student records on February 16th. Damage was estimated at a quarter of a million dollars, or near two million in 21st century money. This is crazy, and they never arrested anyone? For the most part, no. There's one one guy who bombed a University of Washington ROTC building in 1970, and then uh, he wasn't captured for that crime uh, until 1987. So do you think this was, like, organized, like... It sounds like it may be a wider issue than just the U of O campus. Some of the bombings are linked to anarchist groups Mm -hmm. in the area. At the time, there was like the Weather Underground. Later on, after 1970, I think there was the George Jackson Brigade, which is a very interesting story. But I'm not going to go into that right now because it's too too vast. Yeah, there were a lot of the SDS, I think, the uh, Students for a Democratic Society, I think, had some. So there was like a lot of there was there were extreme, extreme people there. Well, in in 1970, you had Kent State also. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was earlier that, yeah, in in that spring, I think, right? Yeah, that was uh, in May of 1970. That moment is kind of looked at as the real official end of Summer of Love. There were several things after 1969 that went bad. But in Kent State, for those that don't know, that was there was a protest against Vietnam War and they sent in um, the Ohio National Mm -hmm. Guard. And there's that iconic photo of the flower being put into the barrel of the gun. But they ended up shooting Kent State University students and uh, four of them died and nine others were wounded. So I'm not sure if these are in response to that or it was all happening everywhere. And that just happened to be the one that was really violent. I don't know. But in April of 1970, four or five sticks of dynamite exploded that had been set outside the university's Johnson Hall. Six months later, August 21, 1970, Emerald Hall suffered another attack by firebomb, this one set on a timer. It exploded at 10.30 p.m., setting off fire sprinklers, and had already been doused by the time firefighters arrived to the scene. October 2, 1970, a dynamite bomb exploded in a basement restroom at Prince Lucian Campbell Hall, a 10-story building. It caused severe damage to the structure, but the three people on the top floor at the time of the boom were completely uninjured. The bomb had been a bundle of 20 to 24 sticks of dynamite, and the crime was investigated by the state police arson squad. University President Robert D. Clark said, quote, it could have been coldly calculated by off-campus or campus persons, or, as seems more likely, it could have been an act of sheer madness. That narrows it down. (laughs) (laughs) It was maybe a student or not. It was determined probably because it happened, that the blast had been powerful enough to, quote, drive a baseball through a two-inch plaster and metal lath wall and two windows. Four days after this attack, Governor Tom McCall visited the site wearing a cute little hard hat and spoke with a group of 300 students. He was running for re-election at the time, after all, and he was only heckled a little bit and did some door-to-door campaigning while in the area. Worst nightmare ever. (laughs) The next month, on the 21st, the circle was completed when Portland's Liberty Bell replica was destroyed by a bomb, which I covered in part one of Explosive. Then, on December 1st, Johnson Hall was bombed once again, four to five sticks of dynamite either thrown into the building or placed near a first-floor windowsill. Most of the damage was limited to broken windows, and its cost for repair was around $8,000. And finally, A headline from the December 26, 1970 edition of the Salem Capital Journal reads, quote, Campus is quiet, but discontent lurks beneath. The article cites a large drop-off in protest attendance and called the quiet, quote, 
not a result of contentment, but resignation, and that discontent still seeds just below the surface. The article then ends in a classic, old-timey trauma brush-off. Quote, But right now it appears the situation could be summed up in this comment. A lot of the kids are back studying and attending class, and the rest are at Max's drinking beer. <sighs> nothing to see here, folks. We've done nothing, but rest assured, you're safe. That's really wild. I know that's before my time, but not by that much, literally a couple years. And to have never, you'd think there'd be some sort of, I don't know, like a nickname or something, like referencing that that school was just oh, like raided. The bomb capital or something? Something to have never heard it and this university was being bombed constantly. Yeah, That's I don't really... remember them talking about that at the university tour. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Oregon State myself. So. Anything like that there? Not that I know of. We had a haunted building, the anthropology building. Ooh. That had some good stories. More than animal ghosts. Well, you know, I told that of couple years ago human did, anthropology no we did oh, a, okay. a episode we did episodes for halloween and i told the ted bundy story with mm -hmm. the girl that supposedly mm -hmm. haunts the dorm um but yeah there's lots of uh spooky stories but no bombing no bombings that i know of wow i would guess that the university and the police probably did their best to quiet it from being talked about and well known and they don't want to not have students going there well, like what they do with rapes on campus. Yes. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, none of these bombings or fires resulted in any arrests or convictions. And today they feel totally forgotten. Extreme anarchist groups or individuals are thought to be responsible for some of these incidents. This story begins for me on Unsolved Mysteries, Season 3, Episode 2. And it's supposed to be featured in an update segment between main stories, but I'll be damned if I can find it. The clip looks to have been edited out of the version available, which made me, and still makes me, want to scream. Michael John Lassen was born in Oregon, September of 1945. He grew up with his parents and two older sisters in the Hood River area. And then, at just 17 years of age, he met, fell in love with, and married Diane Horner. But yikes, she was only 15, so it should come as no surprise to learn the marriage only lasted three years, ending in divorce in April of 1967. It was an ugly split. Diane filed a complaint with the court, claiming Michael had been cruel. 18 years old, two kids, and divorced. Uh, wow. You're already, like, deep into life. Yikes. And it only gets better from there. <sighs> Yeah. Hence why she was seeking custody of their children, Johnny and Michelle, and $150 in monthly child support. Diane was granted the divorce, the custody, and the money. Good job, Marion County Court. It didn't take long for Michael to find another partner, marrying Sharon Ann Gowan, a 20-year-old woman. Yet again, another three-year relationship came to an end, this time without involving children although I did find a record that showed the pair held some sort of ceremony in Reno seven months after the divorce, perhaps an attempt at reconciliation that ended in annulment. The mill town of Elgin, Oregon, falls between Portland and Boise, nearly at the Idaho border. To say it is a small town would be an understatement, 
In 2010, the census showed a population just over 1,700, and the city itself encompasses just one square mile. And some fun facts from Wikipedia. If you drew a straight line from Disneyland's Main Street due north, it would land you in the heart of Elgin. The city whose most famous landmark is the Elgin Opera House essentially lines up with Disney's Opera House, the high-tech prison which houses Cyborg Graham Lincoln. <laughs> now, you read that off Wikipedia or did you measure it yourself? I didn't do nothing. <laughs> As small towns tend to be, Elgin was a quiet place. That was until September 29, 1985, when Odie's Steakhouse in Bronco Room, the popular local hangout of which Michael had become the owner, was slightly damaged due to a fire of unknown origins. Great name. Hmm. Odie's Steakhouse in Bronco Room. I love it. I wish I could go there. It is <laughs> That sounds so cool. I did read about the original owner of it, who was just like mad about the rodeo. He loved it. He was crazy about rodeoing. What and does it, Bronco Room mean? Like, well, I think, well, I fucking think. Fucking Bronco? Yeah, I don't know if they actually had like people on bulls, but uh, it may have had, may have, I don't know, bull themed yeah. or a concert thing or cowboy themed. I don't think they had the rideable thing. Yeah, I was yet. wondering if they did or some Maybe. primitive version of that. I don't know, but it was just all about They're that. They're like, so. we took the horse from outside the grocery store, amped it up a bit. Cranked it up. <laughs> Odie style. <laughs> Getting insurance payments had taken time as had the repairs, and Odie's wouldn't even reopen its doors before another tragedy would strike. Michael's establishment, shuttered for months, then suffered a literal blow. It was around 6 p.m. on January 26, 1986, when an Elgin resident, Mr. Schwebke, no first name, went walking past the business and smelled gas coming from the tavern. He did not inform anyone of the concerning and dangerous odor, and six hours later, at 12.30 a.m., now the 27th, Odie's exploded, and the natural gas-fueled flames led to the building catching fire. Being in the heart of the downtown area, the buildings were close together. From the explosion and subsequent flames, the Elgin Hardware and Sporting Goods stores, Perfection Auto, a pizza parlor, and apartments above the business were all affected. The pizza parlor only had to contend with smoke damage, and the other buildings were fire-damaged, but the apartments took the worst of it. One was empty, and another had a woman occupying it, but she was able to escape the blaze. Sadly, the same couldn't be said for 89-year-old Clarence A. Witty. He had been living in one of the apartments and was unable to escape. The loss of life and multiple businesses was devastating to the small community. As shocking as it all was, it was difficult to imagine anything more than a tragic accident was to blame. Investigators confirmed the incident had been a result of a gas line explosion. Looking a little closer, though, investigators found that the gas lines to the furnace and other related appliances had been manually opened. Mm -hmm. When the gas company confirmed there had been no leaks in the lines or to the exterior of the building, they knew something fishy had taken place. Even more damning, the restaurant had been vacant. The back door had been deadbolted, the front door had not only been padlocked, but nailed shut. All of the evidence confirmed it. This was a case of arson. Since most businesses don't get blown up for no reason, eyes were immediately on Michael, the owner. But they didn't have much physical evidence, and just a few days after the explosion, a wiretap order was permitted for Michael's landline. Officers listened in to call after call, hoping to hear something that would allow them to bring charges to Michael, if he had been the one to plan the incident. As some investigators eavesdropped, others were looking into what could have been a possible motive. 
and it wasn't difficult to find one. It turned out that Michael was the public owner of the steakhouse, but he was actually in the process of purchasing it from one Kathleen Stockfleth. Too bad for Michael, though. He had fallen way behind in those payments. And not only that, but Michael owed money to another investor of the tavern, a Mr. or Miss Hawk, H-A-U-C-K, who had purchased some interest in Odie's and was also not getting paid. After getting the insurance payout from the first fire, Michael made the decision to up the coverage, and that elevated payout was only going to be valid until February 1st, which was just days after the explosion. I feel like he maybe didn't try very hard to make it not seem like he blew up his own place. He seemed more interested in the goal than doing it right yeah, like or smart. Nailing the doors and just And there's more kind of obvious. Interviewing the suspects, Oregon State Police Detective Montgomery interviewed Michael Lassen and Deborah Thompson, an employee at Odie's. It didn't lead to much, and Michael refused to take a polygraph. The interviews continued, with Michael being questioned several times, and each time he swore he had every intention of remodeling and reopening his business. Putting together their case, the state felt they had developed a pretty solid timeline as to what had occurred in the hours before the Bronco Room blast. The most important point was that Michael had the only key to the building. On January 24th, Michael and Deborah Thompson disconnected the gas line from the furnace and removed some of its panels. Two days later, around 1.30 p.m., Michael, Deborah, and four friends were back in the building. Supposedly, the friends were there grabbing supplies for a wedding, and the plan was that Michael would give Deborah the key to the building so that she could let workers in who would be helping with the post-fire remodel. But instead, Michael decided to hang on to it. And Deborah was... An employee. Oh, okay. Just someone who worked at the bar. Oh, probably, I don't know, okay. bartender, server. It's unclear if the four friends were ever questioned. They were looked into, though, and it was decided that none of them, quote, would have a motive or stand to gain from a fire at Odie's. There had been search warrants issued for the six persons of interest, including Michael, and detectives were hunting for some sort of pipe wrench that may have been used to disconnect the gas lines, but they found nothing. Investigators were desperate for anything more than the circumstantial evidence they did have. With times being as tough as they were, they felt that every business owner in the area would have the motive of money if something were to happen to their business. They needed something solid to prove Michael did this intentionally. It's unclear if the prosecution was shooting their shot with the evidence they had or if they'd heard something resembling culpability over the wiretap. Either way, a grand jury indicted both Michael Lassen and Kathleen Stockfleth in March of 1986, bringing charges of arson, felony murder, conspiracy to commit arson, theft, attempted theft, and conspiracy to commit theft. And Kathleen was the actual owner or yeah, was she, selling it to him? Yeah, she she had yeah, she had Ooh, bought and it. They were in cahoots. Yeah, full cahoots. That's fun. Mhm. I love a cahoot. Me too. That's another one of those conversations like how did that come to be? He's on the phone to her, has her over like, you know, I'm way behind on these payments, but what if we blew up your business? Probably started as a, like, he was like, wouldn't that be crazy if, if we, we just like took insurance I'll just, payments. we'll just open the gas lines and let it, let the building <laughs> blow up and then we'll just take the money. Kill the people around here? And to not think that anyone would, would look at the dates of the policy and all that stuff. And I mean, my God. Yeah. Or that he was in a financial situation. That, uh... Back to the wiretap. After just a few days of listening in on Michael, detectives had no evidence. In fact, they stopped listening when he mentioned he felt he had been tapped. So he got a new phone and a new number, 
and investigators then filed for another wiretap request. The first request had been made as they felt they were not going to be able to get any evidence without one, but they hadn't exactly exhausted all options. And the second request had been made after Michael changed numbers. The problem with this was that the first request was valid for only 30 days, and the second request was made just over a week later, so it voided itself. That's when the court decided whatever evidence they had gathered through the phone tap would be inadmissible. One piece of information investigators collected, possibly from the now useless wiretap records, was that a couple of days before the explosion, on January 24th, Michael and his employee Deborah Thompson removed paneling from the building's furnace and disconnected it from its gas lines. Pretty hinky stuff. Hoping to get a deal, Michael pleaded guilty to the arson and manslaughter charges in September of 1987. Waiting to be sentenced, he was allowed to be bailed out, which was not a good call, Union County Court, and when it came time for his sentencing hearing, he just didn't show up. Michael Lassen then sneaked his way to Portland, where he was spotted selling his car for cash, after which he took the money and fled south. As for Kathleen Stockfleth, she pleaded no contest in 1991. Her murder charge had also been reduced to manslaughter. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison and ordered to pay a restitution to the state of $323,256, which would go to the insurance company and the victims of the fire. By 1993, Kathleen was already out on parole. And they didn't charge the employee who had been with him? I think probably because it was all based on wiretap evidence, oh, I would think. yeah. Or if, maybe they were like, if you'll talk to us, we won't charge you. Yeah. Or, yeah. But then, yeah, but then it never even it never even got to court. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't until 1999 when Michael would be captured by the FBI in San Miguel, Baja, California, in Mexico. On August 22nd, Michael was finally back in court. The charge for conspiracy to commit arson was dismissed, as was one of the charges of arson in the first degree and the theft charge. And the murder charge was lessened to manslaughter in the second degree. Michael was sentenced to 20 years, and just as his story began, it ends with a marriage. In April of 2000, months after being captured, he married 13 years younger, Asel Zarate Arista. I don't see information regarding how much time he served after his capture, but no matter how long his sentence, it feels like an odd lesson that after he ran away for a dozen years, his charges were lowered. Yeah, for real. Manslaughter just doesn't seem like justice for Clarence Whitty, killed in the Odie's fire. Very interesting. I feel like those are always so obvious. It's like law and order style. Oh, yeah. Of like, oh, the business blew up. Oh, he's got a lot of financial issues. You know, I always think about like, how do they find themselves in those scenarios? And I've got to imagine they're frantic. And when you're frantic, yeah. you make really dumb calls that you think you're going to get away with. Yeah, you're in like fight or flight kind of a thing. Right. Had you not heard of those kinds of stories? Right. <laughs> I guess I don't have them all memorized, but I guess it does fall under manslaughter because he wasn't setting out to do that. Exactly. But knowing that the businesses around there had apartments. Yeah, it seems intentional if there are apartments. Yeah, that's the risk you're taking. And all of those old buildings, that's how they're built, where the business is on the bottom mm -hmm. and their apartments or offices on the top. Yeah. Unless you're a total dum-dum and you just, you can, and they believe you. Well, it's that selfish, you know, this is for me, this is what I need, this is what I have to do. That causes a, that, that causes a lot of tunnel vision, I think, mm -hmm. yeah. when it comes to those things. Especially if the owner who you're having the financial issues with, if they're on your side with it. Oh, you know, yeah, they're if, like, let's fraud it up. Yeah, yeah. If, if she's like, okay, I'll take this chunk of payment so you don't have to owe me money anymore. 
It was such a bad scam. Well, they thought it was probably a win-win and they just didn't think about the repercussions. Yeah, that they could sort of like just call it a wash. Yeah. Kill the business, get the money and probably get away. And then move on with their lives. Yeah. And so he was sentenced to 20 years in 99. Nine, yeah. Oh, so he's I out assume he's out. Sure. Yeah, I assume so. Because uh, he probably got early release. I'm sure, yeah. If the QAnon yeah. shaman can get out early, I'm sure this I kind of feel sometimes that when people are on the lam for a long time, they get back and they do kind of get like, hey, you know, we'll take care of you a little bit. Like yeah, they'll, they'll like, kind of like for let them off we're the hook. Just, we're just glad you're here. Yeah. <laughs> and we're just glad we can serve any kind of anything. That's so ridiculous. Yeah. You know my rule. I However feel long like, you're gone is the basis. That's what we're starting with. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's changing, though. Like, I don't think that's we're going to see that happening anymore, yeah. I would hope. Oh, my gosh. Where they so get, ridiculous. like, a certificate for turning themselves yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> Junior deputy. Yes. Participation award. <laughs> so, yeah, explosives. Um, it was so hard to kind of pinpoint what I was going to talk about in these things. It was just so vast and, like, I think there was a lot of complexities to like the people who did the bombings that uh, it would have taken probably another two episodes to sort of get into. Yeah. Because there's a lot. I read extensively about a couple of those extreme groups and it's uh, fascinating and you kind of see what they're going for and then how it just completely, completely lose the plot. Yeah. And, and, and in an effort to stop people from being killed are willing to, uh, you know, they're kind of like thoughtful bombers, but they could still have killed a ton of people. Mm-hmm. You know, collateral damage after an explosion, too. It's not just the bomb. Right. Structural um, damage. Could have just really, mm-hmm. yeah. That makes me think of that Poker Face episode. I won't say mm-hmm. who. I don't want to spoil. But, yeah, that idea of being so extreme the other way, it's like, well, you almost come back around to the thing you're fighting. You're the villain. If you're angry about yeah. war and violence and extremism and people dying for no reason, that's exactly what you're doing. And I get it that you're trying to have a message heard, but... If it's that's so, the it's way, it's so he, easy for yeah. the systems to twist it, though. It feels then, like that's the plot to a lot of books, too, where it is mm. a life lesson where if you're not careful, you're going to become who you hate. Yeah. You'd think people would start picking up on that. Yeah. That is just so wild. It was so prevalent, and I've never heard anything about no, None of yeah, them. The yeah. only bombing I, about. when you brought that up, I was like, oh, are you talking about the one at the hotel in Portland? From the Wild Country documentary. Oh, yeah. I don't, I have not seen that. I don't know about it really. And then obviously that guy in Death Row that we've talked about, I know his, but other than that, I don't know any. Yeah. Um, What was the, I don't remember Wild Wild Country. I mean, I don't know. Oh, I didn't watch the the whole, that was the cult out out in the rural area. And I don't remember all about it. But were those the ones that were like all red? I think so. They bombed, I think it was the Heathmen. Well, there's got to be a, a screw loose there, too. It's like, okay, you have this massive goal. You have to have some sort of extremism yeah. to get to that point of wanting to plot to get to that goal, right? Like, we could say something like, oh, I want to kill all people that rape children, right? right. But, like, there's going to have to be some sort of event, some sort of triggering event that would get me to, like, an extremist mm-hmm. situation. So... It's very interesting, like to to watch that slow burn of a cult happen too, right? Yeah. Where then they are, have people on board with them, plotting mm-hmm. and and acting out these things that you know are wrong. Yeah. Well, all these people being like, okay, we're gonna build our little dynamite sticks, and all right, you go take them to that place, and I'll take these to that other building. And what were we watching about Patty Hearst just like yesterday? Oh, it was Bad Vegan. Yeah, Bad Vegan. Yeah. Yeah, they were comparing her. Yeah, the brainwashing and the mind control and... Oh, that's what I was going to say, that like the people in those 
uh, anarchist groups around in, in Oregon at the time were probably, yeah, we're having the same sort of brainwashing type things, just mm -hmm. having the same messages just pounded and pounded and pounded into your head when you're in this like enclave of people who are extremely passionate about this cause. Mm -hmm. I could see that just. And you're coming in out of a time, you know, in the 60s, you really have the first time that kids are really breaking away from their parents in mass. Yeah. And trying to find their own people with same ideals that are so different and so extreme from their parents. And yeah, it doesn't take much to get into that. And next thing you know, you're carrying a stick of dynamite and leaving it on the field. It does seem like a reaction almost to like society itself or mm -hmm. the previous generation's damage that had been done or something. It's just like the anger was so enormous that it, it had, it came from like a hundred different sources. Yeah. And then it gets focused down to like, this military, they have like an establishment on campus, which is, I don't like at all. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I get it. I understand some of that because it's just like you'd be screaming into a void. Yeah. No one is listening to you. And, uh, and it's a point where you're like an adult now and you're at school and, and what you say should, should like start to kind of matter because mm -hmm. you're a grown up. And then they, I'm sure we're just, yeah, treating them like children and like, uh, nuisances yeah and then and then acted way too late yeah we're coming for your dynamite <laughs> Now, go find it. Go find it. Go listen to us. Now. You'll love our bloopers. It's so funny. Or you won't. Or you'll hate us. I don't know. Because you have no sense of humor. Grow up. And you are a right-wing nut. Grow up. <laughs> Put all that. I think all that. No. no. We'll pay for a minute spot. Thank you. <laughs> Y'all ready for this? <laughs> Josh! <laughs> oh, I hate that. Not you saying it, but just anyone just shouting screamed. my name. Oh, I'm I, oh, definitely in trouble. I forgot to take my meds last night. No! no. For constipated? <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. I for constipated my medicine. <laughs> I was very close to the mic like a jerk. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, am like you can hear. <laughs> hey, I mean, if you got blood pumping all hard up in your head. Well, Louis Pasteur, I don't know if he cured himself, mm. but he solved milk. <laughs> <laughs> Made my dick bigger. <laughs> <laughs> Visually. If you like this idea, please respond in no way. And if you don't like it, please send a dom threat to murderintherain at gmail.com. A dom threat would warn me or us of an impending attack by Dominic Toretto and his family of vehicular superheroes. Please write, won't you? What the fuck are you talking Thank about? Thank you. <laughs> Fast 10 in theaters this May. Oh my God. <laughs> Please don't. Limiting access for the boy. Sorry. Boy. That's so <laughs> yeah. Boy. What? We're sorry. Oh, uh, no, it's okay. I'm just trying to restructure a uh, sentence here. Re Is he mad at us? <laughs> I'm trying structure. to restructure the sentence. Full on bully attack. <laughs> he expects it by now.
clickety clack that. Don't click at me. Cl- click it out of you, babe. <laughs> click it out of you, babe. <laughs> I have a kumbaya question. Is it because that song sucks or because it's like problematic in some way? So I, it always sat uncomfortably with me yeah. because it's religious, right? Then I started digging into why where it came from and the origins seem to be from enslaved people oh. and we have no right to use the songs that they created for their I thought uses. Kumbaya was uh, indigenous no nope. sounding yeah. I assumed it came from way back to so that song we say no thank you no thank you clicky clacky Kumbaya nah Look at you making a difference one meeting thank at you. a time thank you thank you oh no I meant Emily thank first. you <laughs> What would you rather have to eat out of oh every day of your life? A diaper, and you can't explain it. A butt. A cheek. diaper or the trash? What about a butt cheek? But Spread it's... them cheeks. Oh my God. <laughs> For yeah. a foot long. This, like a dirty it's, diaper? It's clean, but I just use that's my bowl. That's your lunch bag every day. Oh, yeah, a diaper. Because that's fucking funny. Yeah, that is funny. Okay. Unless it was one of those little mini trash cans for your locker. Well, mm. it looks funny, but you also can't explain it. No, I could <laughs> But then the alternative is a giant garbage can? Or just any sort of gar yeah, garbage of some sort. Some okay, sort of I'm gonna bring container. a cute little garbage can. I think I'm going garbage can mostly for the absorption issue. I like a wet food. I don't want it. Oh, yeah. And then you don't have to worry about throwing it away either. Well, you can have the thing in like a Ziploc bag or something. You don't have to put the, the food directly on the diaper. That's not the point. That's uh, not what so I'm weird, going for. What would you rather, Josh? <laughs> I would do both. I would take a diaper out of the trash. In fact, I did that my entire freshman year. I don't know why there was always diapers in my high school garbage cans. My first teen mom was... Amber and Gary on Teen Mom. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a real good one. Yeah, that guy was the most Gary Gary to ever Gary <laughs> in maybe in Gary. Yes. All right, Josh, you got a story for oh, us? Oh, yeah. I forgot. <laughs> we were doing uh, something. We were like, can we just change our show to Shoop in the Poop all the time? <laughs> we'll just do funny voices. Yeah. <laughs> West Eugene, born and raised. Is there anything that rivaled um, Honky Tonk, Badonkadonk? <laughs> Nothing. Never. Good. Nothing okay. compares. Like I've been thinking about just how big that fucking crowd is. Five hundred people, maybe. Well, it can hold up to eight hundred, oh, and I'm hoping barf. to sell it out. Oh, barf. <laughs> All of a sudden, Josh is sick and can't perform. Oh please, he'll get going, and his little yogurt mamas will be cheering. I him know. On. I'm just saying, <laughs> and he'll get up there and be like, "Oh, I'm Mr. Swag and Mr. Cool." Some windows were blown out. Tim Allen, is that you? Oh. Oh my God. I haven't thought about that show in ages. I loved that show. Oh yeah. In a state state highway, Emerald Hall suffered another attack by firebomb. This time. Ah! Sorry. Oh. oh hello. My tummy. It's just high. That was my tummy. I thought that was someone's bum. No, no it was my tummy. You don't wish. I'd clear out this room. <laughs> <laughs> Don't threaten me with a good time. And that discontent. Fuck. <laughs> Resi- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, I just know how annoying that is That's when you're stuck. <laughs> shit. <laughs> Not a result of contentment, but as a... <laughs> Not a result of contentment, but as... <laughs> <laughs> Not a result of contentment, but as... <laughs> no jail, more. jail, go to jail. No more boom boom for you. 
this story. <clears throat> Sorry. Suck a dick dick. And some fun fact. And a. That would be a good Josh episode. Probably. Oh, thank you. All right. Because it's boring and there's a lot of technical no, things. It's just, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> it takes place over a long period of time. That's definitely my style. That, yeah, I yeah. Think and like it's that. not direct. You don't like direct violence. I try. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't like it, but story wise, you're not drawn to that. Yeah, I think it, it was. It's harder for me to write that stuff. And then there's me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when you're I'm, a woman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like a big baby. Like, oh, oh, the world is scary. Oh shit. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> oh no. I really don't. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>